Hello, welcome to Only God Rescued Me, my journey from satanic ritual abuse. I am so happy to bring Angie back with us this week for part two. Angie, welcome. Thank you. Would you like to open us up in prayer? Yeah, yeah, we, we've taken about 40 minutes to connect for no apparent reason. So I, I'm just grateful that we've connected. I'm grateful that in both of our busy schedules, we've found time and I'm grateful for your audience and your platform and most of all your heart because even though I could speak to a microphone and try and recount my story in chronological order, it's so much easier when, you know, it says where two or three are gathered together, there I am amongst them. And the prayer of agreement, um, the power of two believers coming together and creating a safe platform is is just beyond. Uh, it, it, it's just it's it's very very powerful. So Thank I pray you. right now. I just pray right now, Jesus. Shabbat Shalom. It's it's dark now, so the Sabbath is ending in the Republic of Ireland, where I live, and it's only probably lunchtime with you, Lisa. Is it or oh, four hours behind? You're about two o'clock in the afternoon. No, we're about 12. Oh, 12. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's probably, I don't know what time it is here. I'm so discombobulated. But Lord, I just pray that you ground us, center us, that any altars would come into alignment with your will and that we would communicate what needs to be communicated today. And I'm very grateful to Lisa for providing that platform. I pray just... Not our will, but yours be done, God, and that we might reach people and uncover the truth. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, and I said this is part two. So for all the people listening, if you want to go back and hear the first part of Angie's story, it's very important. So you went through about ages one through eight in your first part and that it's fractured because there's a lot of drugging and stuff that goes on. And because of dissociation, trying to get back all the pieces of our story is very difficult. It's so hard. So that's what you're still struggling to put together. And you're doing it and you're doing it beautifully. So I, I applaud you for that. And, and that you keep going to God in this and for everybody listening, because I have so many people that reach out to me and they're like, I don't even know if it is SRA. I just have these pieces or people are showing me journals where they're drawing rituals and they're like, oh, I didn't know that was real. It's like, that's one of your parts talking to you. So you're helping our listeners with their fractured pieces, which I really appreciate. So what you are doing today is very important. Yeah, thank you. And I I um I I avoided looking at other people's disclosures for years. I started to deprogram, if you like. I've always had certain memories, always, but fully deprogramming I started in 2003 because I made a determined effort not to program whilst I was raising my three children because I wanted to keep it all together to raise my children so I just shelved the horror memories in my life and thought I don't know what they are I'll deal with them later 
And then around 2003, I started to deprogram and I purposely avoided researching too much because I didn't want to adopt anybody else's story. I didn't want to uh, uh, contaminate my own memories and so on. But I, the two people I did read were, were uh, Kathy O'Brien and Bryce Taylor, Susan Ford. And um, there's something, although I still think Mark Taylor was a handler right till the end, and that would probably upset Kathy O'Brien to hear me say that, but she said that when you disclose, that's the way to unlock the next level of disclosure. And after speaking to you a week ago, I I pray, obviously I prayed and um and then lots of things started to come back to me. Oh, you forgot this, you forgot that, you forgot this, you forgot that. And so I was very grateful and it and it bears out the thing of, you know, I, I did never go for hypnotherapy or regression therapy or you know, all the new age solutions like rebirthing and you know, all of that. I, I have always said to God, please reveal the hidden parts in my mind, please, Lord. And um, so so the part, the thing I wanted to say was after speaking with you last week, lots of other memories came back. They weren't gone forever. It's just everything gets compartmentalized. So I kept sending you emails saying, oh, remind me to say this, remind me to say that. So if you've got a prompt list. I do. From the yeah, great, great. So you had tunnels in Gibraltar and Corsham. Yeah, because there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of cynicism about children in the tunnels and uh, uh, things going on in tunnels at the moment. And I do believe there is some what do you call it when there's sensationalism going on with the Q movement and blah 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 whatever. But at the same time, I can verify firsthand that the first 12 years of my life spent as a child in the Royal Air Force, when we were stationed in Gibraltar, um, the rock of Gibraltar, which is huge, and my father got very excited about a special permission he got to take my mother and us children on a tour of the tunnels. And it, it, it was usually high, high, uh, top secret and, um, you know, very limited access. And so my dad got, my dad got permission um, to give us, to give us a drive through. So I'm just confirming two things. You know, the, I was in Gibraltar from the age of five till eight. And in that time, um, my dad drove my mum and our sisters through the tunnels of Gibraltar, which were wide enough for army vehicles, air force vehicles, you know, like military vehicles to drive through. That the, the tunnels in Gibraltar are a thing. And the other memory that reminds me of is the caves of Gibraltar, um, stalagmites and stalactites. It's a tourist attraction. Tourists aren't allowed in the, or they weren't, in my time 
tourists are not usually allowed in the tunnels of Gibraltar, and they cover they cover that by saying it's dangerous. Um, you know, and there's signs outside the tunnels saying no entry, highly dangerous, you know, it might collapse on you or whatever. But the caves of Gibraltar, you can tour certain of them. And my sisters and I were put from a very young age in gifted child programs. And my elder sister, who's two years older than me, she was uh, in when we were in Gibraltar. So she was there from seven till 10. In that time, she got a ballet scholarship, but she also had a three hour radio show aged nine she had a she was a dj running a family sunday afternoon three till six or something military radio which was very well patronized and broadcast my nine-year-old sister was a dj on a radio show for three years when we were or for three hours a week i don't know how long she did it it might just have been a year or two but the, the the pop star back then in the 60s, Donovan, who was quite big, he had his 21st birthday party on the Rock of Gibraltar. And there was a big buzz that Donovan, the pop star, was having his 21st and stars and celebrities were flying in from all over the world for this amazing party. And then everybody was disappointed because no journalists, were allowed and then uh at the last minute the only quote journalist that was allowed was my nine-year-old sister who had a dj spot on the military radio and she was taken to donovan's 21st birthday party and she has no memory of it she has no memory of it so that, that that's just to say that there are tunnels in Gibraltar, there were secret parties in the caves, which I believe were rituals. And the same with RAF Rudlow Manor in Corsham in Wiltshire, the west of England. That that's um the last posting my father had. And um there are underground bases that go all the way from there, which is about 100 miles from London. They go all the way to London underground where you you can drive like and again, my my father, he always liked to show off. He couldn't keep all his um, classified secrets from his family because he loved showing off. He would tell us, you know, classified secrets. He just loved coming home from work and saying, oh, my goodness, guess what, you know. Um, a bit like Kay Griggs' husband um, that used to disclose to her. He just couldn't keep it to himself. So my dad used to say, you know, when we were based at RAF Hereford, which was where the SAS were trained and um, black ops, kind of secret assassins and all that stuff. But when we were based at RAF Rudlow Manor, he got us, again, a tour of the underground bases and the... They're pretty well documented, and it, it was officially where the royal family and the members of parliament, the politicians, 
would be evacuated if there was an incident in London. So if there was a nuclear threat or whatever there might be in London, um, there was a way to evacuate the royal family and the politicians. And they could be evacuated underground completely, 100 miles all the way to Corsham in Wiltshire. And my father took us, my mother and my sisters and I, to those under, so I can verify, I can vouch for at least two underground bases. That was what I wanted to say about that. I find it interesting that he did that because God's using you to reveal so many yeah. of those things, you know? Yeah, and, and that makes me wonder because I think if, if you have time and patience, I think this is a three parter. The first eight to 12 years was the hardest to recall because those memories are so fractured. And then from 11 to, you know, when I started to deprogram properly at 43, those are very clear memories. And then since then, this is what I wonder, because I believe I was manipulated and dissociated deliberately into being a an asset and a spy. And it makes me sad that is the spying, and this is where I hope God has turned what the devil meant for harm into good, because all the things I witnessed, I'm now disclosing. So I just pray in Jesus' name that I'm disclosing them for good and not for evil. I believe you are. Okay, is there any more prompts I missed from the first 12 years? Because the first 12 years are the hardest for me to document. Drugged dramatic holidays in Morocco. Okay, yeah, yeah, I definitely missed those. So, uh, and something else I'm reminded of is that my nana, uh, Dora Dupre, nay Cummins, um, she has, she had a newspaper clipping saying, five-year-old Angela sang, danced and recited uh, and that was in Hornchurch in Essex. So that must have been before we got posted to Gibraltar. And um, somehow, even though my mother said, I spent most of my first years in military hospitals, but somewhere in between that, she taught us all to sing and dance and recite. We were like um, the Von Trapp family. We were all trained to perform, we were all trained to sing and dance and recite. So even despite my multiple hospital admissions, long stay hospital admissions, the first newspaper clipping about me is five-year-old Angela sang, danced and recited. That was in England. But um, Morocco, when we got to Gibraltar, the border was closed technically with Spain. It was when General Franco was in control and it was kind of fascist and Britain had colonised Gibraltar, so the border was shut. Um, and uh, But when my father used to breach the border multiple times and the local Catholic priest who went on to become the Bishop of Gibraltar, um, they could breach the closed border um, and they did a lot of smuggling of luxury cars and 
uh, pedigree dogs and all sorts. But we used to go to Morocco a lot for holidays in the three years that we were based there. And um, there, uh, there are just stark... I'm reminded of the Hampstead case because Morocco is where the children from the Hampstead case first disclosed in 2014. But my father used to take my mum and us five little girls and a dog and usually an RAF handler as well. There would be, for some bizarre reason, on almost every trip, there would be a Royal Air Force extra man, you know, like come along and I never understood why but um, things would happen like um, one time we had to flee and my father was in such a hurry to get us to get us away he drove at top speed from a petrol you know gas station and he left behind the trailer that was like we had a camper thing that you used to tow and he left it behind in the garage and then when, like, one of my sisters said, Daddy, Daddy, you left, you know, you left the trailer behind. But the family legend is that, oh, we had to flee because Daddy apparently traded my mother and five children for seven camels. But he says he was only joking. But the Moroccan took him seriously and was chasing us down to make my dad keep his side of the bargain. And it used to just be a family joke. And it's only when you reflect on it and you think, my dad drove out of that area of Morocco as if his life depended on it. And the family myth is, oh, I did a trade and and he took me seriously. But I do believe we were trafficked there, but not not for permanent exchange, you know. So I think that was a trafficking deal that went wrong. And other times, the handler, um, we were forced to eat a meal that absolutely, it was like eating poison. Um, and we were really hungry because we were kept hungry. It was kind of part of the programming. And we were forced to eat this meal on the last day of the holiday in Morocco. Like we went on holiday there, holiday, I say that, but mostly they're drugged memory loss times. Um, But on this particular time, we were forced to eat this meal that felt like eating just poison. And we were told, oh, it's, I can't even remember the handler's name, the extra person that came along. But we were told, oh, he offered to cook and he's put too much salt in. So we don't want to be rude. So you're all going to eat it and nobody's to say a word. Don't complain. And so we're eating this horrendous stew or whatever it is. But again, with adult hindsight, I don't think it was that the RAF handler guy put too much salt in. I think it was a heavily poisoned meal for the last night we were there and then the other travels we did during the time in Gibraltar have drug memories and one was we drove back I think it might have been 1966 for my grandparents golden wedding in Ireland and we drove back from Gibraltar um 
we I, the border must have been open by then because I think we drove through France and Germany or Germany and France and then got a boat to Rosslare or something. I was only only about six or seven, but on the way through France, we stopped at a French chateau, which is like a castle. And we were all dressed up in lovely little white dresses and white frilly socks and black patent leather shoes. And it didn't make sense at all. Why would, you know, why when we're traveling in apparent sort of, you know, working class standard of living, why are we calling into a castle or a chateau? And we called into this chateau and there was a banquet going on. And I remember a pig's head with an apple in the mouth. Have you ever seen that? It's pretty horrendous. It's like part of the banquet was a pig's head with an apple in the mouth. And I remember being horrified at that. And then I remember being shocked that the, it literally was like the banqueting table was heaving with luxury um, fare. And um, the beef was so rare, it was dripping blood. And, uh, and so I remember traveling for hours in the car, you know, on this epic five-day journey from Gibraltar to Ireland by car. But I remember thinking, why are we going to a palace in France or a chateau? And why is there this banquet? And why has the pig got an apple in its mouth? And why is the beef dripping blood? And then no memory, no memory at all. Again, this is a common theme. It's like you find yourself in a like a movie set and then you black out, you know. So even I say to myself, you know, even you you could say I was only six or seven um, and maybe I only have partial memories, but why would I have such snapshot memories of the apple in the mouth of the pig or the boar or whatever it was and the, the beef dripping blood and then uh, the amazement of why are we in a castle and then nothing. So there's too many of those memories where... Um, strange things are followed by blackout, uh, no memory, you know. And I have those as well. And and you hear that from survivors, you know, very vivid memory until you're given something to eat or drink and then nothing. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's, that's their victory. That's what they're so thrilled with themselves. That's why they experimented with LSD and scopolamine and um, there was somebody infiltrated a paedophile group on the dark web about four or five years ago when I was doing some research and the whole group was a buzz about the latest drugs that would have the child victims never recall being raped. Wow. But the body remembers the body, I do believe, there's a book called that, but I do believe the body um, internalizes the memories of the trauma. So even if, like me at 65, you still can't recall every detail, um, but the trauma is still there. The trauma is still there. You know? well, my therapist told me about a murder and they took 
the organs of the person that was murdered to, you know, to give to somebody else. And the person that got this person's heart started having nightmares of the murder. And through those nightmares, were able to convict the murderer. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, they, they're, you know, they're talking about how we take in the cells of our bodies, take in what is happening. So it really doesn't matter that our minds are drugged. Our bodies are taking in everything. And that's what the demonic doesn't understand or our parents don't understand or the abusers don't understand. Our bodies are taking it all in. Yeah. It says, it's done in the dark, he will reveal because God sees all of it. Absolutely. And I think our spirit recalls as well. Absolutely. Um, and um, I, I just find that, I just find that to be true. So um, with it, so I talked about France. I've talked about the Moroccan holidays. Another time, well, two other times we were, well, I can show you in the next one my German birth certificate. When I was born in a military hospital in Germany, I was allegedly accidentally given a German birth certificate, which is just weird. Um, I should have either got a military British birth certificate or an Irish birth certificate, but I was given a German one. And again, the family legend was, oh, the military registrar was on holiday or vacation and uh, my mother wanted to get me registered. So she cycled into the German town and got me a birth certificate. But it's very strange that I have a German birth certificate. I could claim German passport, German uh, you know, citizenship. And I was engineered at least four or five times trying to get me to marry a German. And I was given a godmother while my parents lived out there, whose husband was a, already convicted. Well, he was convicted of exposing himself in a children's playground. And he went on to abuse my siblings and myself and I suspect dozens, if not hundreds of others. But that was one of the stops when we would do our epic journey from Gibraltar into Spain, into France, to Ireland. Somehow we went through Germany and we stayed. So not only did we call into a French chateau, we also called to my godmother and her husband who, you know, um, orally raped my sister on the first visit there. And she told my mum what he did. And then my mum, because she kept getting electroshock treatment and she was a victim as well, very dissociative, she says she forgot that my sister had disclosed that to her the year before. And then we were taken there again and then he did it again. And then I was sent there for a month every summer from the age of 12. So it, it seemed to me like um, trafficking. It just, with hindsight, it looks like pure, pure trafficking, especially the chateau. Like, why did we all have to dress in our prettiest white dresses with, um, you know, why did we have to dress so pretty 
to call into this banquet in a castle? You know, what possible reason could there be for that? I don't know. Right. You mentioned it floated out of my brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what happens with DID. That's why I sent you notes, because I can read creative writing I did years ago or attempts at disclosure or poetry or whatever. And when I read it, it's I have no memory of having written those things. I only know that it's in my own handwriting that I wrote those things and I remember those things. So um, that's part of, I think, dissociation and compartmentalization. So I can remember like this is why it was so helpful to talk to you last week because because I talked to you and told you what I knew on the surface then other memories started floating up but if I don't grab them straight away it's a bit like when they say to you write a dream journal mm-hmm. you know if you don't write your dream down and not every dream is significant but some dreams are from God and if you don't write them down in that waking moment it's gone. You, you you can't remember. You can't remember. So it's the same with compartmentalized memories. I could have a memory and think, oh, quick, quick, write that down, write that down, because otherwise the next day I'll, it'll be gone again. Yeah. Not gone, but it'll keep coming back and forth. It floats away and it makes, like, like I've had, I had a public, I went, I was, I was um, sponsored in Louisiana in about 2009 on a 10-day visit, and they set up speaking engagements for me in a in a homeless shelter, in a women's prison, in a school, in a church, in a conference center. They set up 10 days of speaking engagements to me, and then a publicist approached me and said, "If you just write a book, I will." I will be your publicist. I will get you booked across America. And I've never been able, I know you said to me to try and persevere and do it myself. Because of that floating away thing and the dissociation thing and the triggering, since 2009, I've been trying to chronologically write things down. And it always evades me. It always triggers me too much or I can't get it in sequence or the memories float away. Yeah. Getting a book in sequence or getting an interview in sequence is so, it, it's almost impossible. I know, it's crazy, isn't it? It shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. And because like a memory doesn't come start to finish. And and that was frustrating when I was talking to the detective, when I went and, you know, press charges against my father and everything, because he's like, well, how did you get to these rituals i'm like i don't know yeah how did you get home after i don't know which makes us so easy to discredit yeah he's like they're gonna make you look bad i know there you know but i I didn't know you know that you only get these little bits and little pieces because of the drugging because of the dissociation it's tough it's really tough you, I've watched m- most of your testimony. I know you've got vast amounts of evidence, and I do too, but to put it 
in order and sequence is my goal before I die is to put it down at least in writing but did you ever get any justice no the wow. the scuttlebutt and it's a small town so you can't say for sure but that the sheriff at the time who has since died was part of the group yeah and that he went to the detective and said if you want to keep your job you will give me all the evidence Wow. And he needed to keep the job, so he gave it to him. And the last I heard, someone asked him about my case, and he goes, I don't know Lisa Meister. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I tried. I tried, and it got covered up by the coroner, the local GP, the local the local police. It got, it got covered up every step of the way, you know. Um, you know, and the, and the best thing I can think is that the advent of the internet and recording so i recorded the inquest and i recorded some of the interviews with the police and good yeah so i've documented the fact like even when i tried to report the military side of the abuse um in the uk because it was the british air force my father joined um uh, they, they, I have emails from them saying the Irish police are not cooperating with us, the British Royal Air Force are not cooperating with us, the health board are not cooperating with us, we can't get your medical records, we've tried the ombudsman, we've tried every every avenue of influence we have, and we're hitting a brick wall. Yeah. So yeah. at least I have that documented, it, you know. That's good, Yeah. So anyway, just I the hospital and they're like, oh, we don't have any records of you. I went to the doctor that I had growing up. Oh, we don't have any records of you. Yeah. Yeah. The first 12 years of my medical history where I'm supposed to have spent the most of five years in hospital and was not allowed to do sports or exert myself or whatever. No records can be found. I've got emails from the Royal Air Force saying to the detectives investigating uh, sorry, we have no records. Yeah. We have no, no medical records for that. We have no idea why. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so is there anything else just on, just to, um, I think I covered everything. Is there anything else I missed in the first eight, 12 years? Wooden hanger beating ritual. Yeah, that's, that's, that's later on. Um, and it's interesting, you said something that triggered that for me earlier, that a lot of this is rituals. Even there's a program called I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and it's filmed in the jungle. But what they're doing is rituals where they bury you in a coffin or they force you eat, to eat bugs or they cover you with snakes or they put you in danger in water, near drowning, near death experiences. Those are all rituals. So, um, but the wooden hanger thing, I don't know why I put that, but that was when we, when I was 12 and my dad had left the Air Force, which didn't make them happy at all. They didn't want him to leave. They wanted to post him out to the Persian Gulf, which is now Iran, but they wanted to send my dad there unaccompanied so they could continue with the programs and experiments they were doing on my sisters and I. Um, but my mum threatened to 
well, she just said, if you stay, if you sign on for another five years in the Air Force, I'm, I'm, I don't know what threat she gave my dad, but she just said no more. And so much to the disgust of the Air Force, after 25 years, my dad wouldn't agree to go overseas unaccompanied again and leave us, leave mum and us children wide open to experiments and placements and trauma. Um, so he wanted some control in that, do you think? Well, well, for some, my dad was quite important in the early years of the programming of my mother and us five little girls. But as we got a bit older, it seemed like the Air Force wanted to put my dad out of the picture and then uh, continue to move my sisters and I around like pawns on a chessboard. We were being privately educated all the way through his Air Force career, we were being privately educated in um, Jesuit-influenced convent schools, Catholic convent schools. And I talked about when we were in Gibraltar, they seem to have a lot of gifted child programs. I've got an appointment at six o'clock. I don't know what the time is, but- We're good, the, it's 36 after. Oh, that's great. Well, in Gibraltar, my sister, older sister, seemed to be the first one in the Gifted Child programme where she had the three hours a week DJ gig at nine and she had a ballet scholarship. And then when we came back to the UK, um, we kept getting told we were sitting our 11 plus, which is like an entrance exam in the UK education system, but it it was over and over again, we kept sitting these exams that didn't make any sense. And it was like profiling to see where you would best be placed as an asset uh, who was already dissociated and compliant and traumatized. So, um, I don't know why I said the coat hanger. Like, so when my dad left the Air Force, that they were furious about because they tried to post, he'd already spent a year in Mazira in the Air Force and left my mum and us five girls, you know, behind in England because he was on an unaccompanied posting. And I think we were heavily in programmes by then. My older sister had moved from the gifted child thing to she was eventually taken into care at 14 as a um, uncontrollable juvenile delinquent. It went from it went from gifted child in Gibraltar to juvenile delinquent in uh, Wiltshire. And she got first of all placed with a Navy officer's family. Then she got placed in a children's home. Then she got placed permanently um, in, in a care home with an order of a minimum 50 mile distance from the family and no family contact allowed. So, um, but the other sisters, uh, the four of us younger ones, I was number three, um, my dad bought 
a listed building in Bradford on Avon in Wiltshire and and he converted it into a 150-seater restaurant. And um, we lived above it. And um, so uh, the big thing was cigarettes. And I think cigarettes, I think nicotine, it wasn't just an Edward Bernays or Edmund Bernays experiment to make women smoke cigarettes. Um, I think it was used as addiction seeding and programming. I think a lot of victims were seeded with addictions in order for us to self-destruct at a young age or not be credible witnesses. So even though my parents, neither of my parents smoked cigarettes, but all of my sisters and I did, and I still do. And Fiona had smoked, a, we used to get terrible beatings for it. But Fiona, who's dead uh, since 2015, she was smoking a cigarette and she threw the butt out of the window over the restaurant and bizarrely it landed on a, a policeman's shoulder and burnt a hole in his uniform jacket. And he went into the restaurant and said to my father, somebody from that upstairs window has just thrown a cigarette out the window and it's burnt my uniform and I want compensation. And so my dad compensated him and then came up and beat my sister with a wooden hanger, which is a real heavy, I should have brought one out to show you, but a really heavy duty uh, old fashioned wooden hanger. He beat her so badly um that you know we regularly used to wet ourselves with terror during beatings and um she could hardly walk the next day and um i i witnessed the beating she got and i often witnessed and that's what they talk about with with ritual abuse is that sometimes it's equally traumatic to see somebody else abused as it is to be beaten yourself or abused yourself. So I like I was the youngest of the three older children. So often my dad would be the eldest one first, brutally, you know, to to a pulp almost, then beat the next one. But the trauma of me watching my two older sisters getting beaten and knowing that I was next is almost as severe as the beating. But my sister got beaten with a wooden hanger so badly she couldn't walk the next day and she was utterly, utterly traumatised. And when my father went down to run the restaurant after the brutal beating, you know, back to work, business as usual, um, I said to her, we have to run away. Like our older sister was already put into care and she and I were the next two oldest. And I said, we have to run away. We have to tell somebody. We have to run away. And she's like, okay, okay, we'll run away. And so I made a plan. I packed her stuff and my stuff. And I packed as if we were definitely going for good. And then I set the alarm for something like four in the morning 
to make sure my parents had come up from the restaurant, gone to bed, fallen asleep. And then, uh, and, uh, and then before we ran away, I placed wooden hangers on every eve of the doors. I wanted to torture my father with what he had done to my sister. I wanted to show him. Uh, I wanted, it was like I wanted to show him the torture uh, tools that he'd used and make, you know, make him sorry. And then I, I went into my sister at three or four in the morning, whatever it was, and I said, right, right, I'm ready. Everything's packed. They're asleep. Let's go. And then she said, I can't, I can't. And she just gave me her um, post office savings book, which had 10 shillings of it. This was back in the late 70s yeah and she she just said you go you go you tell and um i think i just went back to bed utterly defeated because i thought because that wasn't the first time my sisters and i had tried to escape another time i think it might have been even in gibraltar we set off the three of us after a very 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 severe beating and we set off, the three of us, the three older ones, to go and find a policeman and tell them. And then as we're walking, my older sister saying, oh, you know, if we tell, um, Daddy will go to jail and we'll all be put in an orphanage. And by the time we got a mile up the road, she had talked us out of disclosing. So your oldest sister that got put into the home, did you find out why? Was she telling somebody about what went on? Why did she get put away? Well, um, I don't want to talk too much about her because she gets she's back in denial. Okay. And totally trauma bonded. Um no, uh, I'll leave that for another conversation. That's fair. The, the one that died, or I believe was murdered, she was deprogramming. And um, she and I were starting to piece together everything. And um, sadly, she died. So... I'm trying to discipline myself to stay within my own disclosure um, because it's traumatic enough. Uh, if I add in, like, I believe my sister that died was part of a project for swapping babies at birth. So there was a thing going on at the military hospital where military men were recruited to make two women pregnant at the same time their wife and another and then they do a baby swap in the hospital and then they'd observe the mother baby child uh, bond to see if it was nature or nurture and I believe my sister was a victim of that my sister that died 10 days before taking a DNA test with my mum my older sister you know, she had a fractured skull aged eight and yet was utterly devoted to my father, like Mengele, like Mengele, just utterly devoted to him to the end, despite being 
having a fractured skull aged eight and despite being put in care at 14 after being a gifted child, despite having dissociation and mass memory uh, gaps, um, she adored my father till the end and hates me because I have said what I've said. Yeah. Doesn't talk to me, hates me. Um, so yeah so um, but the part I don't know how we're doing for time what what time is it now 37 after Uh, uh, let me just have a look Um, all right yeah so I've got about 10 more minutes the part I wanted to cover today which is part two but I'm so grateful because part one was so hard did I miss any other notes did you have any more (laughs) We got through all of them. So thank God, and I'm sorry it took so long. Um, the, the the next part, so the first five years, and then and then up to twelve when my dad came out of the air force, and then that was the age at which my older sister gets put in care. My then next older sister, the one who died, was sent away at fourteen to boarding school. Uh, and horribly neglected in boarding school. No, no pocket money. No visits home. No weekends. No clothing allowance. Just literally, because I had an auntie that was a nun, and she was the go-to person to hide us children if we were beaten or, or mute or in trauma, or she would just find a convent, or. A, somewhere in the catholic church system that we could be hidden until we could function again but so from 12 to 18 um my two older sisters had been removed by the age of 14 but i was allowed to stay at home until 18 because i was doing well at school and was a high achiever um and my mother sort of had ambitions, unfulfilled ambitions on her, of her own that she lived vicariously through me. So uh, I was like acting and doing ballet. And at 12, I had finally rebelled and said, I'm not going to refrain from sports and activity anymore. I don't care the consequences. I want to... Um, you know, do hockey and netball and whatever I want to participate. And so I did. Um, and then went from 12 to 18, my dad was hitting his kind of 40s and he had rampant um, affairs and was quite successful with, we had a restaurant, 150-seater restaurant, I told you, so he's experiencing great success, but he was also more interested in his work with the elites. You can call them the predator class, the uh, hunting, shooting, fishing community in the UK. And uh, uh, but before that, before he even left the air force, there was things about Salisbury. There was lots of secret missions. There's probably more to uncover in the early years. But so from from 12 to 18, for me, it was a case of 
running the restaurant with my mother and um, still having drugging blocks, um, memory gaps, and then finding, this was where it first started, with being placed around elites. So I started a babysitting agency, and um, one of the first regular jobs I got was with a lord and lady. Um, I don't know, have you heard of Nancy Astor, the first first female to fly the Atlantic or something? I don't know. Anyway, she was an aristocrat um, pilot and very much part of um, what people call today the Illuminati. So I I was found myself babysitting for Lord and Lady Jolliffe and um, his wife was the niece of Nancy Astor. So I kept finding myself being placed around British aristocracy and and then eventually royalty, Saudi royalty and um, Austrian royalty. And I couldn't find any good reason for that. I was bright and well-educated, privately educated, and um, but it but it it felt very engineered. Um, so even from the babysitting stage, I was baby. My dad was moving. He, his excuse for always being amongst aristocracy and royals and elites, I don't like that word, but his excuse was because he was a dog trainer and a horse whisperer. Uh, and so they coveted his his uh, expertise in their shooting world, mostly. Um, and that was the excuse, but it was cover, in my opinion. Um, so, so, uh, I'm so sorry to do this, but I've got an appointment in five minutes and I want to talk to you about the next memory before we left the Air Force, before I get on to 12 to 18. And I don't need to go into it at great length, but the human hunting, I have two memories, one very, very clear. Did I tell you about the human hunting? I believe you did. A okay. The last one. Okay, maybe I did. Then maybe that's somebody else. So go ahead and say it again. Okay, well, we'll finish with this. But before my dad left the British Royal Air Force on our last posting at RAF Rodley Manor, there were many memories, drug, uh, a drug, uh, hidden, partial, fractured memories. Like, for instance, particularly my sister Fiona and I, dad would say to my mother, I'm taking ferrets out to hunt rabbits at night and I'll take the two girls with me. It'll be an adventure for them. So we would go out at midnight, you know, on these forest expeditions, supposedly hunting for rabbits or something. And then, and then, so I have recounted consistently, and this is a, a memory I've disclosed to the police in a police video, ABE interview. I've disclosed this in a video I, DVD I made in 2009. It's just a frozen memory. 
I was running for my life and um finally falling over on my face and then and then blank and then regaining consciousness on my back and then uh being surrounded by several men one of which was in an army general's uniform and whom I later identified yeah I did tell you that in the first interview so so for, from I'm sorry I didn't I want to get on to even though there was much ado I was being abused consistently from 12 to 18 being sent to Germany every month to um a known paedophile and being consistently abused daily uh there's much there but i want to get on to uh, i want to get on to in the next if we can do this again the next part i want to get on to being placed at 18 with people like the saudi royal family and with people like bcci which was a cia money laundering bank international bank and with um you know, politicians, diplomats, like people in the running for Secretary General of the United Nations, um, uh, you know, starlets being married into Austrian royalty. I just seem to be placed strategically. And it's, uh, I have proof, but it sounds like a movie, but it literally was like being a, a, a being an asset that never got a salary, it was like literally being placed in strategic situations over and over and over again. Yeah, well, we'll get into that next time. Okay, and I'm sorry it's so much. Pardon? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry it's taking so long. I really wish I could condense this. No, that's fine. We'll take all the time you need. Okay, can you pray us out? Yes, thank you so much, God, for Angie and for her ability to explain what's happened to her. Lord, I thank you that you bring out all that's done into darkness to life. And Lord, I just thank you that you're exposing the darkness and that you're exposing the people that did this and that they don't get away with it because they stand before you for all that they've done. And Lord, I speak peace to Angie and her life. And I just thank you for and ask that you bless her and just continue to heal her in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Right, I'll talk to you next week. We'll, we'll hopefully connect a lot more smoothly next week. Sounds good. Thank you. God bless. Bye.